you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Job this morning? We're continuing in our series in the book of Job. This morning, uh, Job chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. In the Gospels, Jesus ran across a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. You remember the story? And she went to all these physicians, and they took all her money, <laughs> and they didn't help her. As a matter of fact, it, things probably got worse because she was neglected by the doctors. Do you remember the story? And then because she reached out and touched Jesus, she was able to be healed. Maybe you've had one of those physicians or maybe a series of physicians that if they were five feet from a bullseye, they couldn't hit the target. Well, in our story uh, this morning, as we go through the story of, of Job, he's um, lost his kids, he's lost his livelihood, he's been hit with this terrible disease, his wife tells him to curse God and die, and his three friends, by chapter 12, have totally worked him over, offering up all kinds of advice that has absolutely made things worse, has deepened his depression and his despair over his current situation. And in chapter 13, verse 4, he says, you're all a bunch of worthless physicians. Hence the the title of our little talk this morning. Now, Job responds in chapters 12, 13, and 14. He takes a couple of shots at them. You know, he takes a couple of... (laughs) You almost can't blame them. You know, you'd almost want to say something to these three so-called friends. So he takes a couple of shots at them. But essentially, he responds to them. And I think we can find some help here. Especially when... Maybe we've had something go wrong in our lives, turn south on us, and then uh, someone comes along and either tells some lies about us or is making some accusations. As a matter of fact, he says in 13.4, you smear me with lies. Smear me with lies. And you're a bunch of worthless physicians. I've come to you for help, but you don't help me. Now, what I'm going to do is, uh, this morning, I'm going to skip over chapter 11 because essentially Zophar, his third friend, his third so-called friend, really um, basically gives him a rehash of what all the other two friends have said. Uh, Just looking briefly, verses 1 through 6, basically uh, Zophar says, you know, you say you're innocent, but I think God hasn't really, he's kind of not really leaned on you heavy enough. I think he should have gone heavier. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, In verses 7 through 12, he says, you know, you don't even understand what the Lord's work is doing. And he kind of sums it up in verse 12 of chapter 11 where he gives him this lovely parable where he says, an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey born a man. Oh, thank you so much so far. That really is helpful. And then he closes his chapter by saying with the rest of his three friends, if you just confess your sins, everything would get better. 
Verse 14, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away from you and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents. If indeed you would lift up your face without moral defect, then you would be steadfast enough here. So essentially Zophar says what his other two friends have said. But I want to look this morning uh, at Job's response. And in those three chapters, we're going to find some real help when things have gone south and there's some people who have criticized us, maybe even said some lies, and have been worthless physicians. Let's take a look. First thing we see in chapter 12 is Job puts aside their claims and acknowledges the nature of the Lord. He puts aside their claims and acknowledges the nature of the Lord. Let's take a look. I'm going to read these verses just in little sections. First, we'll do verses 1 through 6. Then Job responded to Zophar, Truly, then, you are a people, and with wisdom will, and with you, wisdom will die. But I have intelligence as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a joke to my friends, the one who called on God, and he answered him. And just and blameless man is a joke. He who is at ease holds calamity and contempt as prepared for those whose feet slip. The tents of the destroyers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure, whom God brings into their power. In verses 1 through 6, with a little bit of sarcasm, with you, so wisdom's going to die with you, really. And, but it seems as if God is allowing evil to prosper. Look at verses 7 through 12 then. But now, ask the beasts, let them teach you. The birds of heaven, let them tell you. Or speak to the earth and let it teach you. Let the fish of the sea declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the palate taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men. With long life is understanding. Verses 7 through 12. What they are saying is no secret, no big secret. All nature knows that the Lord's hand is on all that takes place on this earth. You're not telling me anything new. And so he kind of starts off with taking a a shot at his three friends. You couldn't uh, blame him for that. Uh, During the Second World War, Winston Churchill had a very negative uh, relationship with one of the royalty. Her name was Lady Astor. And during World War II, uh, one time she said to him at, uh, at an event, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. Churchill replied, Madame, you're ugly. <laughs> and then he added, and in the morning, I'll be sober. <laughs> so Joe, Joe takes a couple of, you almost can't blame it. He takes a couple of shots at uh, his three friends, But then in verses 13 through 25, he begins to focus on the nature and the character of God. Look what he says. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Behold, he tears down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man. There can be no release. 
Behold, he restrains waters. They dry up. He sends them out, and they inundate the earth. With him are strength, sound wisdom. The misled and the misleader belong to him. He makes counsels walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech, and he takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on the nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. He makes the nations great and destroys them. He enlarges the nations and he leads them away. He deprives the intelligence, the chiefs of the earth's people, and makes them wander in pathless waste. They grope in darkness with no light and he makes them stagger like a drunk man. Verses 13 through 25, he begins uh, to focus on the nature of the Lord and what he's doing in this world. This is not necessarily a criticism. He's almost saying, there is someone in charge of all this craziness. Now, when we uh, look around this earth, and we look at all that's going on, we, we sometimes, don't you sometimes wonder, hey, is there, any, is, there anything going, is there anybody in charge here? Think about what's happened. Just think about what happened in the Jewish Holocaust in the 30s and 40s in Europe. Millions of people killed. Is there anybody in charge? Think about what happened in the R- Rwanda between the Hutu and the Tutsis. Do you remember that? Back in the 1990s. I think there was over a million people slaughtered. Is there anybody in charge? Think about what's happening in the Sudan. For years, Christians prayed for the Sudan because northern Sudan was primarily Muslim. Southern Sudan was primarily Christian. And the Muslims were attacking the Christians and thousands of people were killed. And finally, somebody stepped in and they separated the two countries Northern Sudan is now a Muslim country. Southern Sudan is now a Christian country. Wow, that's, isn't that wonderful? Until we found out just a couple of months ago that now the two main tribes in Southern Sudan, both who are Christian, are fighting with each other and thousands of people are still being killed. My heavens, is there anybody in charge? Look what Job says. Yes. Behold, he tears down, verse 14. Verse 15, behold, he restrains. Verse 16, with him are strength. Verse 17, he makes counselors. Verse 18, he, did you get the picture? He's saying, God is in charge. God is in charge. And so when things begin to go a little bit south in our lives, We need to be able to see what Job is telling us there. Years ago, we had a fellow, Ron Graff, Ron and Barbara Graff. Not too many of us know him. It was a long time, many, many years ago. He was a pastor at one church, and he was trying to transfer to another church, but he spent a couple years in our church, kind of, he worked for a while for Apple Computer, and then he moved on to another church in the um, 
Inland Empire. And I ran into him a couple of years ago at a, a pastor's conference. And I asked him, Ron, how you doing? And I asked about the church. His wife, Barbara, she's fine. His two daughters. But he had a son. I said, how's the son doing? And he says, well, he's in jail. I said, Ron, what happened? Well, his son grew up and got married, and they couldn't have any children, so they adopted two girls from a family where they had been terribly abused when they were younger. And when the girls grew up, he was disciplining them because they broke the curfew, and they got mad at him, so they told her teacher that their stepdad or their adopted dad had molested them, which was not true. Ron absolutely said, not true. My son would never do anything like that. And then they arrested the son. The teacher went to the police. The police arrested him. And when the daughter saw what was happening to their father who had adopted them, they they ran to the police and said, no, 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 we just did it because daddy, you know, was putting us under restriction. And the police didn't believe him. And they prosecuted the son, and he was convicted and put in jail. Say anybody in charge? You know, do you remember that, um, that picture network where the, the TV man said, you know what we all need to do? We need to go outside and open our window and stick our head out of the window and say, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that one begins to happen. Job says, wait, wait, wait. Look at the character and nature of God and that he is sovereign. He is working all things together for his good and for our good. Two passages come to mind in the New Testament. In John chapter 2, everything's going great for Jesus. He's beginning his ministry, lots of miracles. And uh, it says this. This is what it says. This is this testimony of John. In John 2, 23, it says... Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem in the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. Great, everybody's, hey, here's the Messiah. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he himself knew what was in man. So everybody's saying a whole bunch of things, but Jesus wasn't putting a lot of weight on what they said, whether it was positive or negative, because he knows what's in us. He knew that one day they might be saying he's the Messiah, and the very next day they might be saying, crucify him, crucify him. So he wasn't putting a lot of weight, whether it was positive or negative, on what they were saying. Now, one of our favorite verses as Christians is Romans chapter 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for the good. Don't you love that verse? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that a wonderful verse? It is. It's a great verse. Do you know the application? The application is found on the next page. Turn the page and look at verse 35. If you believe Romans 8, 28, 
This is the way you should respond. Then who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You see, at Romans 8.20, if you really believe, if you really, 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 really believe Romans 8.28, then uh, you should be able to confess With Paul, verses 35 through 39, there's the application, my friend. So Job puts aside all the criticism and the lies. He doesn't doesn't pay any attention to those guys because he kind of knows that we're all a bunch of sinners, just like Jesus knows that we're a bunch of sinners. And he begins to focus on the nature of God. Okay. Let's go back to chapter 13 now. Job's second response. In chapter 13, what we see is Job looked to the Lord for direction and guidance. Job looked to the Lord for direction and guidance. Now, in the first uh, 13 verses, he once again, (laughs) he can't help it. He goes back and takes a couple of cuts at his friends. That's where we see verse 4 you smear with lies, you're a bunch of worthless physicians. So he can't help just taking a few, just a few jabs. Thinking about uh, Winston Churchill and uh, Lady Astor. There's another occasion Winston Churchill so angered Lady Astor that she said, if I were your wife, I would give you arsenic to drink. Churchill angered her even more with his reply, and if I were your husband, I would gladly drink it. (laughs) So, Job takes a couple of jabs at his friends, but then he goes on, thankfully, looking for direction and guidance. Let me read verses 13 through 19. Be silent before me so that I may speak. Let them come on me what may. What should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my speech And let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Job knows that he's not some sort of gross sinner. He says, "I, I know I'll be vindicated. But he knows that even if the worst thing happens, even if the Lord would slay him. Yet, look what he says in verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. 
Now there's a passage in um, Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham. Do you remember Abraham? And when he offered up his son Isaac, and it said, essentially, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, it says, he had hope in God, even if, if Isaac, his son, was killed, he knew that what? He could raise him from the dead because he knew that God had promised him that through Isaac, his descendants would come. And so he had hope even if his son died. And that's essentially the same kind of feeling that we see with Job. Even though he would slay me, I still have hope in him. Look at verses 20 and 21. Only two things do not do, not do to me. Then I will not hide my face. I will not hide from your face. Remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. Now these, uh, these two requests, don't remove your hand from me, don't terrify me, are really based in two realities. The first reality is his own recognition that he is, even though he's not a gross sinner, he is a sinner. He is a sinner. And he says, please don't remove your hand from me. David in Psalm 51, which is the psalm in which he confesses his sin with Bathsheba, says, um, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me aside. Same kind of idea there. Hebrews 13 tells us he'll never leave us He'll never forsake us. And so David says, don't remove your hand from me, Lord. Don't remove your hand from me. But then he goes on, he says, uh, let not the dread of you terrify me. And that's based, because he knows he's a sinner, but he also knows that God is a holy God. (laughs) Hebrews 10, 31 says, it's a fearful thing. That's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He goes on. Verses 22 through 28. Then he says, How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make known to me my rebellion and sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble or will you pursue the dry chaff for you? write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for my soles and my feet while I'm decaying like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. In these verses we see um, that he is willing to come to terms with his own sinfulness. He recognizes his sin, but he says... Make known to me. Show me. Help me. So he's asking for direction. He's asking for guidance. He's willing to confess his own sin and face himself. In 1 John, it says that we're not to claim freedom from sin. If anyone says that he's not a sinner or has not sinned, he makes him a liar. This truth is not in him. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, if anyone's lacked wisdom, let him ask of God. So, Job turns to God 
looking for direction, looking for guidance, willing to admit his own failures. And sin says, God, make known to me my rebellious spirit. So the first thing that Job does, he puts aside the people's claims and he turns to the nature of the Lord. Second thing, he looks to God for direction and guidance. There's two really good responses when things have gone south and people are, people are making accusations against you. Okay, verse, chapters 14, verses 1 through 27. Job looks past his short life here on earth. Job looks past his short life here on earth. Now, as you read these, recognize that this, his words are rather morose, and slightly depressive. I, I make that, you just have to see it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, but notice where he's going. That's the point I want to make. Is he's kind of down in the dumps. And I confess, you'll see that right away. Uh, let's read um, the first 12 verses. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him to judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his month is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But a man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires. Where is he? As water evaporates from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, So a man lies down and does not rise until the heavens are no longer. He will not awake nor be aroused by his sleep. As I said, these are are rather depressive words. He's rather, uh, as I said, morose. But there is some help here. Watch what's going on here. Job is facing the reality, the shortness, and the futility of life here on this earth. He's kind of coming to terms with it. Now, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. Jesus also said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Okay, so that's some affirming words from the New Testament. And essentially, what Job is doing, he's releasing life from having any responsibility. Listen carefully. He's releasing this life here on this planet from any responsibility of giving him lasting peace, joy, and happiness. That's his point. He's releasing this life from any kind of responsibility to give him lasting peace and joy. Then look at verses 13 and following. So that's his first point. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. 
that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If, here's a good question. If man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you wrap it up in iniquity. But the falling mountain crumbles away. The rock moves from its place. Waters wear away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth. So you destroy a man's hope. You forever overpower him and he departs. You change his appearance and send him away. His sons achieve honor, but he does not know it. Or they become insignificant, but he does not perceive it. But his body pains him and he mourns only for himself. We can understand, we see right away that Job has a limited understanding of what was going to happen to him when he dies. Look what he says. If a man dies, will he live again? But you can see what's happening. His focus is moving away from what's going on here and the here and now and moving on to what will take place in his afterlife. Now, he doesn't have a full picture of exactly what's happening in this afterlife. But he's moving his gaze away from the here and now to the future. Someone said, uh, well, you Christians are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Not true. I don't believe that. I believe if a person is really heavenly minded, that's when they've really begun to be some earthly good because we're freed from the cares of trying to make this life have some eternal meaning. Paul writes in Romans 8, he says that I do not think that the sufferings of this present life will even compare to the glory that will be revealed to us who are the sons of God, the daughters of God. See, oftentimes, what our problem is, is we fret so much about the here and the now. What's going on to us now? Our job, our house, our family, our health, and everything else. When you and I have no guarantee that we'll even make it here next Sunday morning. You have no guarantee, do you? I was telling some of the folks here at church, after the membership meeting a couple of weeks ago, I went the back way up by Geronimo, and that cross spot up there with the red light on Geronimo, I've seen several people run a red light. So I have a tendency... Uh, not to immediately when I get the green, just to pause for a moment. And I paused for a moment, and I just slowly entered at the intersection, and I was in the first lane when a lady blew through that red light, and she didn't even see me. And if I hadn't hesitated, I probably would not be here this morning. I would either be dead or seriously injured. My friends, my friends. (laughs) I went home... And Nancy's taking a little nap, and well, she actually was just laying down. She was resting. She was <laughs> napping. She was resting. And I said, You know, uh, about three minutes ago, I almost died. And she went, Huh? You have no guarantee that you'll even make it here next Sunday. 
And what Job is doing, he's just, he sees the futility of life here on this earth. Not that this life is empty and meaningless, but if we're looking for any eternal happiness, (laughs) I think most of us will very, very frustrated. Now, Job, in a morose way, draws his thoughts to the afterlife. And my friends, that's what Christians have always, and has always enabled them to get through difficult times. That is the key. That is how they, how they maintain their Christian te- testimony, because they release the responsibility for this life of doing anything, eternal happiness, and they move their thoughts towards that which is coming. Okay. I found a little article written by A.W. Tozer, pretty good man. I think he's early uh, 19th century. And he makes an analogy between about a hammer and a file. Listen to what he says. How am I doing on time? I'm doing all right. Just got a few minutes. Here we go. Okay. The hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feelings and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission, to beat it down out of sight, and to cinch it into place. That's the nail view of the hammer. And it is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman and all resentment toward it will disappear. The carpenter decides whose head shall be beaten next and what hammer shall be used in the beating. That is his sovereign right when the nail has surrendered to the will of the workman and has gotten a little glimpse of his benign plans for the future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. He goes on. The file is more painful still, for its business is to bite into the soft metal, scraping and eating away at the edges until it has shaped the metal to its will. Yet the file has, in truth, no will of, of its own, but serves another master, as the metal also does. It is the master and not the file that decides how much shall be eaten away and what shape the metal shall take and how long the painful filing shall continue. Let the metal accept the will of the master and it will not try to dictate when and how it shall be filed. Okay. Now, as you've been going through this book, if you're with me, you've kind of come to this position with Job. You're thinking, you know, sometimes Job is just two thumbs up. Have you seen that? Man, great. And then sometimes it's like, eh. Have you noticed that? He's up, and then he's down. Have you seen that? It's it's not going to end just real quickly. He's up sometimes, and he's really right on the money. He's right on the money. And other times, eh. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a drowning man. 
the ship is sung and there's some flotsam and jetsam floating around. And he's grabbing at almost anything, trying to hold something that would hold him up. And you know what? I've seen that in people as they go through difficulties. There's times when they'll just, you know, they're, it's just whatever, keep me afloat, help me to float so I don't go dunder. Mm. What's the answer? Well, here at this point, Job gives us some help. He says, uh, when things have turned south and there's many critics and people hacking at you, put aside their claims. Focus on God's character and nature. Uh, Look for him for direction and hope. And then look past this short life to our eternal future. That's, that's what Job is saying here. Okay. Let's bow in prayer. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I, I can't solve your problems. I can barely solve my own. I, I can barely make it through on my own. But can I tell you something? Grace changes everything. See, the answer we'll find here is God's unmerited favor at the end of the book. If that's what changes it. It's God's grace, his unmerited favor. That's makes the difference. And that's to make the difference in my life and it'll make the difference in your life. My life verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, if you haven't begun that journey yet, uh, it might be a good time. This might be the day that you might want to start that journey. You might be like that drowning man, grabbing at anything. But can I tell you what you need to do? You need to grab the hand of the man who stilled the waters. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Pray with me, please. Father, we're so thankful for um, this book of Job. And... uh, how it speaks so plainly to us. And I pray if we're flailing around like a drowning man in the water, we, we don't understand what's going on in our lives, that the answer is, even as Pastor Rob was talking about, the cross and the man who hung it on that cross, Jesus Christ, who offers undeserved mercy and power by his grace. May all of us take advantage of that, we pray in Jesus' name.